If you go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be still in verses 21 through 40 this morning. We've been thinking through the idea of the certainty of the Savior. In other words, the things that we trust about Christ can they be relied on? Are they reliable? That was the sentiment that was in the air, you could say, in the docks of Southampton in 1912, April 10th to be specific. At 9.30 in the morning, passengers began to board the Titanic. Now you know the story, but it's important to understand the ideas behind what was happening in the minds of people. Matter of fact, people were thinking, this is crazy. How in the world can a ship be this big and make it across an ocean? There was a lot of talk about that at the time. Matter of fact, as people were boarding the ship, somebody, it's rumored that... They said, will this ship actually make it? At that point, the captain of the ship, Edward J. Smith, made the statement, God himself couldn't sink this ship. That's a bold statement. It was meant to help people in their confidence, help people in their trust. You see, everywhere from 2,400 to over 3,000 people, I tried to find out the exact number, and they're all over the place, of how many people were boarding. You see, they were entrusting themselves to this ship to make it to where they wanted to go. It was about their faith. And Edward Smith, or the, the, the captain, when he was standing there and he heard that, he wanted to put their fears at rest. He wanted them to understand, you can trust this ship. And we know from not only the stories, but from the movie, we know that the Titanic sits today at the bottom of the Atlantic. Over 1,500 people died, went to the bottom. I was speaking with someone not too long ago, uh, someone who was far away from God, and they said, you Christians put your faith in Christ, but how do you know he's for real? Now, he didn't bring up the Titanic, but in my mind, I started thinking about those passengers. They got on the ship thinking they're going to be fine. They had faith. They had belief. But they placed their belief in something that could fail. It didn't matter if the captain of the the ship said that God himself couldn't sink this ship. He's not the ship. He's not in control of the weather. He's not greater than the ocean. He's not stronger than an iceberg. Are we as Christians like that? Are we putting our faith in Christ and um, when the icebergs come, he's not going to be relied on or he's not reliable? This letter that we've been looking at, the Gospel of Luke, was specifically written for this exact point. And we've titled this series of messages in the Gospel of Luke, Certainty of the Savior. Why? Because there was somebody named Theophilus, and you can see that in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And Luke knew of him or was hired by him. We're not totally sure. He wanted to have an account. He wanted to sink his teeth deep into the story of Christ. He wanted somebody to investigate. He wanted to make sure that when he was putting his faith in Christ, it wasn't like the people of the Titanic putting their faith in a ship. He wanted to make sure that he was the Savior. And we've been voyaging through the first couple chapters here. and We've landed now on chapter 2. And this morning what I want you to see is what we started last week. 
In this passage that we're going to read, verses 21 through verse 40, there are three stories. These three stories intersect. And the idea is to give you confidence. Give you confidence that you can trust the stories that they've heard about Christ, particularly Theophilus. In other words, he looks at the character of these three stories. Uh, Mary and Joseph is in the one we talked an awful lot about last week. We're going to be introduced to the man named Simeon and then Anna today. And the idea behind them being included, particularly Simeon and Anna, Joseph and Mary, it's understood, is for you to see that are these the kind of people that would follow a made-up story? Are these the kind of people that would put their faith in something they didn't believe to be true? And were their lives of such quality of character that they would not misrepresent the story that Luke wrote down? Luke had interviewed these people and he'd written this down so that you can have certainty and specifically that you can have confidence. So if you're here this morning and you're not confident that following Christ is worth it. I hope we'll change your mind. If you're here this morning and you've been beaten up from the week and you begin to wonder, is Christianity worth it? I hope you'll be encouraged. If you're here this morning and you're following after Christ, I hope that we will be able to throw the logs in the fire that is your soul and you'll go out from this place more convinced than ever that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. So here in Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 21. We're going to read a lot of verses. Got to let you know, we're going to walk all the way down through. And as we walk down through this passage, I've got to remind you, not only the three stories, but pay attention to the five words. There's five particular words in this passage that is very important to the story. Because it's a measuring stick. It's the idea that each of the people in this story are doing things according to a standard. If you'll notice, before we read, I'll bring your attention to them in verse 23. Excuse me, in verse um, 22, it talks about the law of Moses. Then in verse 23, it says the law of the Lord. Then in 24, the law of the Lord. And then in verse 27, custom of the law. And then in verse 39, the law of the Lord. Now, why would he scatter that phrase inside this text? He does that so you'll know that the people who are doing what they're doing, they're doing what they're doing according to the standard that God has laid out. In other words, they're not making stuff up. They're not being rogue characters. They're following what the law said. And if they're following what the law said in various ceremonial aspects, would they really lie to you? Would they really misrepresent the truth? The idea of this being scattered is so that you'll see them as high quality of character. That's why it's written in here. And as we go through this, we're going to see Joseph and Mary. And we're going to see Simeon and Anna. Luke wants you to walk away from this going, you can trust them. Theophilus, you can believe the stories. You can trust who Jesus Christ is. Grace Fellowship. Neighbors of people who go to Grace Fellowship, co-workers, you can trust this story. So let's start in verse 21. It says this, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. And to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. As we talked about last week, Joseph and Mary, uh, exemplary people. They're not people to play fast and loose with the truth. Matter of fact, in Matthew 1, 19 through 20, he's called a just man, Joseph. We looked at that extensively. Another word to translate on that is he's a righteous man. Now, righteous not in the sense of perfect, but righteous in the sense when things are on the line, he does what's right. When no one's looking, he does what's right. In other words, he's a straight shooter. He doesn't play, as we said, fast and loose with facts. And instead of putting Mary away, he's confused by how in the world his betrothed could be pregnant. The angel shows up to him. And we've looked at that story. But what you need to concern yourself with is the testimony of who he is. Is he somebody that would make something up? Theophilus, is he somebody who would make something up? The idea would be absolutely not. And also in Luke chapter 138, we looked at extensively Mary when Gabriel shows up. And he tells Mary what's going to happen. She replies, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, she's a straight shooter. She's somebody who's wholly bent on doing what God wants her to do, being a servant. And remember at that time, a girl pregnant, not married. You die for stuff like that. And yet she seems to be of the quality of character. That she wants to serve the Lord. Do people who do that make up stories? Do they try to 
put themselves at the center of the story of the Gospel of Luke. You see, Luke is writing this story to verify. You could say it's an operation verification. And as he goes through their lives, he's not only recounting history, but just under the surface. He's making the point that these people have high quality of character. And you see that specifically in the circumcisions. Eight days after the birth of Christ, they go and have Jesus circumcised. Now, when they're in Jerusalem, if they've gone to do this, they don't have to be there, but they need to identify in three specific ways to the people of Israel, according to the law. There was the physical reason, the idea that the child was going to grow and the name would be revealed, and the physical reason that it was a sign of a covenant. The covenant of circumcision represented the national reason. The fact that the people of Israel, if they believe that God has made a covenant, and he gave this covenant sign to Abraham, in Genesis 15 and 17 we talked about last week, this physical sign was representing a spiritual belief, the fruit of it. You'd say, I question whether or not you believe that. I question whether or not you're really sincere because you don't follow after God. The same would be this idea. If you're a Somebody who's Jewish and yet you refuse to get your kids circumcised, that meant the reality of the covenant that God gave with Abraham has not sunk into your soul to obey it. We talked about that. And there's a spiritual reason also that God had said in Genesis 3.15 he was going to send an offspring. And the circumcision was a picture that this offspring is going to come through the Jewish people. And through all of this, they nail it. They do exactly what the law says. And when they name Jesus, Jesus, they don't name him Ariel, as we talked about last week, or Noah. They don't go rogue and do their own thing. They name Jesus that name because that's what the the angel said. It means Jehovah saves. You see, they're following the script. That's what underneath the story of the historical data that's happening is that Joseph and Mary are being obedient. Now we get to the next part of their story there. Look in verse 22. It says, When the time for their purification according to the law of Moses. And if you skip down to verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle dogs and two young pigeons. Again, we've got this law, the standard. They're following the script. It's almost as if they're checking off. We're being obedient to what we know God has told us in the law, and they're checking off one after the other. Now, this situation, when the time for their purification according to the law of Moses, this is 40 days after the birth of Christ. So we have eight days, and now we have 40 days. And notice where they're at. They go to Jerusalem. Now, this might seem like a small thing, but back in this day, it was a big thing to travel. Not easy to travel. They're from Nazareth. They're a long way away. Depending on how you'd walk, you're between 60 and 72 miles. This is 40 days after. They could have stayed locally. They could have done this ceremony in a local, but they go up to Jerusalem. I think that speaks to who they are. They're the type of people that find their heart bending toward Jerusalem, find their soul bending toward the place in which God's glory had dwelled. And in their passion for being the parents of Messiah, they want to go back to Jerusalem. And so they do. And then 
It's the fact that she's ceremonially unclean. Now let's parse this out. Forty days after, and it says there, purification to the law, according to the law of Moses. Keep your finger in Luke, turn back to Leviticus 12. Go all the way to the left and then slowly make your way to the right of the Bible. Leviticus 12 says something that I think is important toward the passage that we're looking at. And specifically, if you were somebody who's of a Jewish background, you would understand this. And it gives force to the type of people that Mary and Joseph are. It says in Leviticus 12, 1 through 8, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be unclean seven days. And at that time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purification. She shall not touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification for 66 days. Now, when we read this, this is like reading something out of a calculus book. You know, what in the world's going on here? It's, it's confusing. What is happening? Let's parse it out a little bit. The first thing is, is this idea that they're following this particular law. Purification according to the law of Moses. And it says in 24, the law of the Lord. In other words, they're walking through this script... And so for 33 days, if someone would have a male child, they'd be disassociated from the temple. Disassociated from the temple. Now I say that, and you think, okay, what's the big deal? Disassociation from the temple makes you feel outside of the covenant people of God. You're you're in the covenant, you're following everything, but there's a sense in which you're distanced. You're somewhat estranged for having a child? Why would that be? I think there's three particular reasons for that. And follow with me on this. In the original covenant that God had made with Adam and Eve, and they chose to disobey, remember what was the result. One of the penalties of trying to be the creator and not being content with being the creation. Pain and childbearing. The other thing is, the blood that would be associated with giving birth was always associated blood with a sacrifice. Anytime you had blood, it would remind you, if you were a Jewish person, of sin. Then you couple that with the idea of the curse. Then you couple that with Genesis 3.15 and the Messiah would come through. It seems that the Lord had given this To create a reminder. And therefore in accentuating the reminder. There's a distancing from the mother. To look the Messiah. When had a male she'd be disassociated. Now you say well Dan. uh, Why exactly is it different for the female? Because if you read in that passage. There's a distinction before if you give birth to a boy. Or if you give birth to a girl. A girl it's 66 days. Now why is that? 33 and 66 seems pretty unequal to me. Well, I think the reason why is in the eighth day, a boy would be circumcised. And so therefore, there was a visible sign of the covenant of God. But for a girl, there wouldn't be. And the best answer I have, 
why there's a difference. It seems like there is more of a distance for a time of disassociation so that the mother could remember and consider because there was no visible sign like circumcision would give to the boy. The wife would have a time in which she could meditate on what happened in the garden, what happens when it relates to blood, and what happens with the Messiah to come. Those are the details. But one of the things that I think is absolutely important for us to realize, they're following all the details to the letter. Matter of fact, where it says that they're supposed to bring a pair of turtle doves and young pigeons, that's where it says that specifically, that burnt offering, a pigeon and a turtle dove for a sin offering in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6. And that was the scale down for very, very poor people. But they were bringing this as a sin offering. Again, that connection. That the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because man has been dislocated from the God who created him. So this entire thing, there's a a meditation for Mary, for Joseph to remember. They're part of this. And can you imagine how their heads must have spun? Knowing that the child that they have, they bring the... The offering to the Lord, the pigeon of the young turtle dove. It's a sin offering. A sin offering for them. And that the savior for their sin is their child. Incredible. The emotions that are streaming through this passage. Don't walk through it too quick. Don't let the details of the moment drain the, the amazing mystery that is happening here. So we see that in their lives. And then it says, they brought up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What exactly does that mean? Well, if you notice uh, in this passage, it speaks back again to Leviticus chapter 12. And if you had a child, the firstborn would be considered holy to the Lord. And what you would do is you'd pay five shekels of silver to support the priesthood. Because the priesthood, if you were of the tribe of Levi, you wouldn't. But according to the law, if it was from the tribe of Judah, as this would be, they would have to pay five shekels of silver to support the law. And again, the details are there and they're fascinating as to what all the tentacles mean going back into the law. But I think what you need to take time to consider is, is they're doing everything according to the book. And so as Luke is writing this down, he wants Theophilus. He wants you to have certainty. These aren't the kinds of people who play fast and loose with the story. Now we go over to the next story, verses 25 through 35. It's Simeon. There's some amazing realities of Simeon, but why is he included in here? Well, specifically, where it starts to talk in verse 25, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now notice the next phrase. And this man was righteous and devout. There we go. We have it again. Luke is going out of his way to describe the kind of character this guy is. He's righteous. He's devout. Righteous has the idea, as we've said before, when the chips are down, when the pressure's on, you do the right things. And he's devout. He's somebody who's so passionate for what the Lord wants that he's fixed his eye on it. This is what his life is about. He's not a liar. He's not somebody who plays fast and loose with the truth. And then it says here something different. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? That sounds like a consolation prize. You know, the third person or the second person in a contest. He's waiting to get something out of it. 
Now, the idea of the consolation, it's the idea of the, the saving, the rescuing of Israel. So we get to know this guy. He's righteous. He does the right thing. He's devout. He's passionate about that. It's obvious that he's living for the Lord and he's looking for the Savior of Israel, the consolation, the deliverance. His life has been bent on that. Then notice this. This is fascinating. Notice, because you might ask yourself, in the temple area, how in the world does Simeon find the baby? Well, there's hundreds, possibly thousands of people in the temple mount. How is it that Simeon locates this baby? And notice the rest of his story here. It says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's amazing. I don't know exactly how that looks. Somehow Simeon had been told that he's not going to see death. Can you imagine if you lived at that time and you were communicated by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Savior. Do you think that would change the way you saw the world? Do you think that would change the way you interacted with people? I don't know if he was looking for a baby. I do know this, his eye was fixed on finding the Messiah of God, the Christ, the anointed one. And notice, kind of scattered throughout that, it's not like he was making it up because it says there, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, verse 27. Notice how the Spirit of God is just directing Simeon, just directing him. So he's not making this stuff up. The Holy Spirit is putting him in just the right spot, just like Gabriel was giving his message. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary. Now Simeon comes into the temple by the Holy Spirit. He was in there, and it says this, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him in his arms and blessed God. Now notice what he says. Is Simeon the kind of guy that would lie to you? That's the force of this. After we've seen all this, righteous, he's devout, looking for the saving of Israel, being led by the Spirit of God, what he says next is very important. If you're somebody who's looking for confidence, this is important. What will he say about Jesus? That he's a prophet? That he's a great teacher? How does he frame his understanding of Jesus Christ? Verse 29. Now, Lord, now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Your reaction should be the same reaction that Joseph and Mary have. And they marveled at that. Stop for a second, okay? Think of that statement. Particularly, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You've been on the home team if you're Jewish. You've never made it out of the stadium. Judaism is your thing. You're the people. You're the chosen of God. And now all of a sudden when he says this, if you're Joseph and Mary, you're, wait a minute. Not only the Savior of Israel, but a light for the Gentiles? 
You mean people like the Assyrians in 722 who came and waylaid on us? Do you mean like the Babylonians? Do you mean like the Romans who were occupying? A light for the Gentiles? We can't feel the real force of this being Gentile. But them, it was mind-boggling. It was paradigm shifting. They knew of something of it because Israel is supposed to be a priest to the nations. But when Simeon shows up, somebody who's been led by the Holy Spirit, righteous and devout, and he says this, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Where does he get this idea? Well, the idea would be coming from, specifically in the Old Testament, the passage. In Isaiah 49, 6, is it to light a thing that you should be... You should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back and preserve Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant that would come. Isaiah 42, 5 through 6, when the, the Lord is having, the Father is having a conversation with the Son in this passage. 42, 5 and 6. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah, the name that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Who is he speaking to? The father is speaking to the son. I'm going to give you as a covenant. In other words, you are going to be the key to the Abrahamic covenant. You are going to be the promised one that I made an agreement with. And it's going to secure the people, the Gentile people, a light for the Gentile. Simeon understood all of this. He had that within his scope. Isaiah 52.10 talks about Isaiah 61 through 3. As a matter of fact, in verse 3 it says, And nations shall come to your light, speaking of Israel, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that's why it says, For the glory to your people Israel. In other words, the Messiah is coming through you and Simeon shows up, led by the Spirit, righteous and devout. And when he says this, he's aligning his testimony up with what the Bible says, what the old covenant has said, what Isaiah has said, the prophet. And if you're reading this passage, knowing that history, this guy would never lie to you. This guy's telling you the truth. This guy's not making this up. And... Luke would say to you, like he would say to Theophilus, God is truthful, so you can be confident. And the testimony of someone like Simeon should encourage you. You're not trusting in Christ that will let you down like a ship. You're trusting in Christ who does what he says he'll do. He's trustworthy. So why are you struggling to believe? Believe him. Believe the story. Because it's true. We move on from Simeon, this last interaction with Anna. And it's interesting because Luke handpicks these. Notice who she is. There's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. What exactly does that mean, she's a prophetess? When we hear prophetess, we picture palm readers and people forecasting the future, right? 
I'd say that in this context, it's more the idea of foretelling. Again, she's a prophetess, I would say, like Simeon, like Joseph, like Mary. Straight shooter. She doesn't make stuff up. When it's crowned that she's a prophetess, there's only four other times in the whole Old Testament someone's called a prophetess. The first is Miriam in Exodus 15. The other one is Deborah in Judges 4. Huldah in 2 Chronicles 34. And in Isaiah 8.3, most likely the wife of Isaiah. She's never even really mentioned. But the idea that someone's called a prophetess. Four times. And I think in each of those situations, it's not so much forthtelling, but it's somebody that speaks the words of God. In other words... They're not a liar. So when you read the prophetess, Luke wants you to understand, you can trust what she says. Her name's Anna, which is Hebrew for grace. Isn't that interesting? Of the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. You know, it's really interesting about Asher. Why exactly is it put in here? There's reasons for things being put in the Bible. Very quickly, let me give you an overview of that. When it came to Israel and they were laid out in the land, the ten tribes were to the north. That's where Asher would have been taken. And in 722, a Syrian king by the name of Sargon II attacked these ten tribes. They were taken away in captivity. But not all of the people were taken into captivity. It was the people that disobeyed. Matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 36 through 12, the heralds went out, a couriers went out to tell the people of northern Israel... You've rejected me. You have no kings that follow after me. And I'm going to send someone who's going to come down and they're going to take you captive. They're going to bring judgment. God tells them that beforehand. But couriers go out to say this. And what's interesting is in verse 11, it says, However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, of Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So some of them, living in the tribal areas, said, We know we've been wicked. We know we've done wrong. And they come down to Jerusalem. They've been avoiding coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. They've been manufacturing their own belief system and disobeying the command to come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. But they repent. And they come down here. I find it interesting that we find Anna in the temple, in the temple mount. And the thing that took the people, the tribe of Asher away, the sinfulness, the rejection of God as their savior, brought people from her tribe down there. And now she's been living there. Notice the rest of her story. She advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 years. Let's do some quick math here. Let's say that she was married when she was 14 years old. She was married for seven years. What does that take us to what number? 21. Very good. This this side is very with it today. (laughs) Proud of this side down here. 21. So that means, it says the rest of this, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. If you did the quick math here, how old is she? 84. How many years did she live in the temple? 63. 63 years in the temple. Do you think that's somebody that just likes uh, telling stories? Do you think that's somebody that is not trustworthy? 
She stayed in the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. See, around the temple area, priests would come to service the temple and they would have, you could call them apartments, more like cubicles. And something happened that someone recognized that she was so devout that they gave her one of these. And she spent her time praying and fasting. Everybody knew who Anna was. She'd been there for that long. If you're someplace for 63 years, people are going to know who you are. And I'm sure they talked to her, what are you fasting about? What are you praying about? I would say she said, I'm praying and fasting for the coming of Messiah. Maybe she knows Simeon. Maybe Simeon said, listen, uh, the light of the Gentiles, I've been told that I'm not going to die until I see. Maybe that she was near Simeon when that happened. When she sees a crowd gather on one side of the temple, people are gathering around and all of a sudden word starts spreading. He's here, he's here. This is the one Simeon's been talking to us about. He's here. And he goes through this and she gets right up to the edge of the crowd when she hears him quoting this. We have the light of the Gentiles. She shows up on scene because it says at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. She shows up on the scene and she says, this is the one I've been praying about, fasting about. This is the one my tribe walked away from. We walked away from God because we didn't think he was faithful. So we didn't obey him. But now we see that the Messiah has come. Can you imagine the emotions of the moment? incredible. And this is written specifically so that you and I, so that Theophilus, as we read this, we can have confidence. God is trustworthy. Confirmation is amazing that we can have. How are you doing in your trust? How are you trusting? The doubts that come into your mind that might say, um, I'm not trusting so well. Encouragement this morning. Read this. You're on the right path. You're not following cleverly devised fables. It's not like you're boarding a ship that you're not sure if it's going to make it across. You see, you're on a savior. You've trusted in him. And you stand in a great crowd of people that have trusted him and no one has ever been let down. Encourage you this morning. Trust him all the more. Trust him when it comes to sharing the gospel with a friend. Doing the right thing when it comes to reporting the books. Trusting him over what you can manufacture. In your relationships, don't listen to that person who's trying to manipulate you. Don't listen to that friend who doesn't have your best interest in mind. And against God. Trust him. Do not rebel against him. Stand for what is true. Be courageous. Be bold. Be confident. Because God is trustworthy and you see the evidence before you in the text today. Will you pray with me? Lord, you've gone to great lengths to encourage us in our faith. You've gone to great lengths to show us that you are to be believed. And not merely in the written word, but in the testimony of those who we find in the written word. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness towards us. And would you... Fan the flames of the affections of our heart this morning so that we might be encouraged, we might be energized, we might be recharged as we spend this time so that we might believe you more than we did on Friday 
Help us to walk in a way that honors you, that enjoys you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.